is Our American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez regularly brings us great stories about freedom, one of our favorite subjects here on Our American Stories, and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy. And let's take a listen to Alex's latest report. On May 4th, 2017, I went to St. Louis, Missouri to attend a competition. No, not that type of competition. A competition of high school students. The hell with it! That may sound kind of, well... Boring! But it wasn't. They were competing for real money. Money. Uh. For their real businesses. My name is Quincy Milosevic. I go to McCormick High School, and I'm creating an app called Walk It Off. My name is Nate Weenan, and my business is fudged up, and I saw organic voice price. My name is Dave McKinney. It is my business partner. Ron Hayes And we're here to introduce our business product, the Double Backup Backer. The competition sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, Nifty, who brings entrepreneurship classes and summer boot camps to low-income communities reaching over 500,000 such students to date. These students create their very own business idea, write an entire business plan for it, and even get to pitch it. And pitch it to get to the national competition in New York City with its $25,000 grand prize, which the top two winners of today's competition, a regional competition, get to advance to. Two of the evening's competitors and its MC had something in common. And better yet, not just something, someone. The same teacher, the best teacher. Every year, Nifty honors the teacher of the year. And this year, Mr. Jake Lipinski from McClure North High School was honored as the Global Enterprising Educator of the Year. We'll talk with Mr. Lipinski later, but first, his stars on their big night. The rules are that each of our presenters has 8.5 minutes, eight and a half minutes to present their presentation, and then the judges will be given four minutes of discussion, question, and answers. We will time that. And the first up of Mr. Lipinski's competitors was Quinton Milosevic, who's pitching his business Walk It Off, a supplement to the Fitbit exercise watches that count the number of steps you take. And Quinton started off by doing something masterful. He engages the folks in front of him. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yes. Great. Uh, my name is Quinton Milosevic. Uh, I'm a junior. I go to McCormick North High School. And I'm creating an app called Walk It Off. So by a show of hands, do any of the judges own a Fitbit, smartwatch, or accomplish steps for fitness? Fantastic. Anyone in the audience? Awesome. So uh, why do you have a Fitbit? Do you know what your uh, what your goal is to burn, or how many steps you have to take? Ten thousand. Why? Because that's what everyone says. <laughs> <laughs> my point exactly. Now, uh, because it's based off nothing, people aren't losing weight and they're stopping using Fitbit, and I have a solution: walk it off. So the problem: forty-two point three million Americans own a Fitbit. However, one third of Fitbit users 
stop using Fitbit after six months. Why? Because people are trying to beat step goals not based off any facts. They just sound nice, you know, 10,000, you think that sounds good, no one's losing weight. It's my solution. My app tracks the calorie intake of the user and converts them into steps. So now, the steps you need to take are based off what you ate, not just a random number. It has meaning, especially when you go for that favorite food. Let's say you went to McDonald's for lunch, you got a Big Mac. Uh, you, you go into the app, you launch it, type in Big Mac. Different options will come up, you press that one, and because there's nutritional information in the database, in the app, it'll say 1,000 steps. I do a thousand steps for a Big Mac. Good to know. Good to know. And then came the judges sharing their wisdom about what might be good for Quentin to know. So Uber spends $20 to get every single user. You, I forget the number, but it was way too low. So how do you validate, how have you validated your marketing costs to get people to go to the app store, find your company, download it, and then pay 99 cents? Ah, what great feedback. Without getting the marketing right, even the best of products won't mean anything to anyone. And also how your marketing expense interacts with the corresponding revenue it brings in. A one-time download fee of 99 cents might not be enough to sustain the business long term. Another judge actually recommended that he consider a reoccurring revenue model for this reason. You know, these are tough, yet good questions for Quinnen to wrestle with, and it's much easier for him to dive into them at the start of his enterprise than later on, and he now has that opportunity thanks to the help of these judges. Next up, the second of Mr. Lipinski's competitors, Nate Whedon, in his gourmet fudge business, Fudged Up. And during his pitch, this high schooler did something interesting. He told them about his qualifications. Work experience, uh, I've had three jobs and I've worked in the past 15. And so I've had experience. Uh, two of the businesses I work for were uh, local first generation startups, so I kind of got to see how they run a business. And I think that gives me a lot of experience in starting my own. In addition to that, I find my own lawn care service, so I work with customers to um, buy quality lawn care. If I were an investor, I would want to invest in a guy or gal with experience like that. But sadly, I'm not. Then Nate faced the judges. What is the shelf life? Okay, so um, it's organic, so it's refrigerated because there's no preservatives. Um, normally, we eat it up, so we don't have to worry about that. But it's about like one. It's about two months, maybe. About um, in order to sell in stores, I'm gonna have to get that tested. Um, you take that to the lab and they test the bacteria growth, how long it takes. I research that. Um, that's something that I would invest in before I sell in stores. Nate was one confident cookie there, and it's because he clearly did his research, you could hear it, and could be confident in what he was saying. The judges are going to go to a separate room to deliberate on their two and a half, first, second, and third. And after the break, we'll hear from those judges, and you won't want to miss it.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with our own Alex Cortez report from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's Regional Pitch Competition in St. Louis, Missouri. And when we left off, the competing high school students had pitched their businesses, and the judges went into a private room to pick the winners. It took the judges about 15 minutes to deliberate, and it probably felt longer to the competitors. So, judges, I think we're all interested in your impressions. Is there any feedback you'd like to give students uh, before, before the results are announced? I would encourage you, gentlemen, uh, when you face those hurdles and those challenges, look at them as opportunities. You know, you're navigating, you're figuring out uh, the no that you're hearing. Uh, potentially is not right now. You're repositioning yourself to say, you know what, how do I rethink about my product? Now, what's another way for me to reposition this to be successful? But then when you hit that roadblock and you're like, maybe it's, it's okay to pivot. Um, so if you're going to have a, a shortcoming and if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail forward. Because uh, that's the only option. Don't, don't go back. I think it takes a lot of courage to do what you've done tonight. I think it's one thing to have a great idea, but I think it's another to be able to articulate it as well as each of you did. And so thank you for the time you invested and the passion that you showed. All right. We all did fantastic, but there has to be a winner. So I have the envelope. The judges have made the decisions. So in third place, with a winner of $500, is from Cornwall High School, Quentin Boloskovich. Congratulations. Now, the next two finalists are both qualifying for the national competition in New York City. In the second place, receiving a reward of $1,000 from Normandy High School, Raheem Larry and Damon McKenna. And in first place, Nathaniel Whedon, and after the awards ceremony, I caught up with Quentin Milosevic, who I briefly met before the competition, where he didn't tell me something significant that he mentioned in his pitch. Hey, how does $500 feel? Hey, this is good. Yeah. Nice, yeah. You did a good job presenting. I liked it. Thanks. Yeah. I wish yeah. you had to go to New York. That's all right. Oh, it's all right. I mean, you were you were an Eagle Scout. You were humble and not bringing that up when I interviewed you. <laughs> you know that's one of the greatest uh, qualifications out there. Yeah, it's it was scouting changed my life. That's uh, that's just all my friends I know were scouts, and uh, I met them, and the skills you learn are amazing. So yeah. yeah. What percentage of it the Boy Scouts are get Eagle again? Oh, like six percent. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I. Uh, it was awesome getting it, and uh, I tried to help my troop get there. People in my troop get Eagle, too. So You know the guy who was the youngest in Missouri State history to get it? Who? Sam Walton. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, learn something. Is that great? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks, Quentin. Yeah. And then I caught up with the first place winner, Nate Whedon. Hey, how was it feel, winner? Uh, that's good. Yeah? I'm super excited. I was so impressed uh, you were able to answer the, the uh, shelf life question that well. Oh, yeah. That you had researched and prepared so well in advance. Yeah. Yeah? 
you try to think through every possible question um, that someone well, could ask you? A lot of the questions they had asked me were from the previous round, so I had known from that one. And I had been at, they had been asked so I thought like I need to think of a better answer for yeah. the next one. So. Excited for New York? Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, how about the money? How's it, how are you going to spend awesome. it? That's awesome. That's uh, awesome. I'm probably going to save it and I'm going to try to use it for my business. I'll probably spend a little bit, but I'm going to use it for college and for um, this business. And he might get more money still in New York. I next bumped into the aforementioned MC of the night, Matthew Wilkie, who the prior year made it all the way to the national competition in New York, but came up short. And now he's on his way to college. What do you want to do after college? Oh, uh, I want to teach entrepreneurship. Why? Well, I've come to realize in this world that you can do anything. And I feel like some a lot of kids, especially in lower income areas, not as well-funded schools, need to learn that. I mean, Nifty was started on this, on the principle that there was a teacher in New York City, okay? Yeah. He has an idea. He taught entrepreneurship. He told kids that you can, if you have an idea, you can make money. And I think entrepreneurship is a way to take poor and make rich, all right? And this is America. We're capitalist society. I think that that's the way to do it. Through education, learning, and just putting your nose to the grind and doing something. Do you want to try to be an entrepreneur first and then go into the classroom? Of course I want to do. I, I want my my goal in life is to own my own business yeah. and create. But I realize that that there's always gonna be education. I want to be certified for education just in case I have a fallback. Yeah. But I, I Yeah, that's everyone's dream I feel like, but it's definitely mine. Just own your own business and be able to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. How much of this do you credit to your teacher, Jacob? You know, I, I give a lot. Uh, I started, I had no, going to high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then he invited, said, hey, I was on the wrestling team with him, and he said, join DECA. And DECA's another business camp. And I was like, it's all right, it's pretty cool. And then I took his entrepreneurship class, honestly, just because he taught it. I thought, okay, easy A. He's my coach. I got this. But and then I started realizing and I was like, he would do problems in class. Like, this is a problem. How would you? Well, how would you make a business to solve it? And I eventually just nail things down. I feel like okay, I got this. I know how to do this, and it just made sense. You know, some things come easily to people, and I feel like it comes easily to me, and I I love it. Do you know what that's got to mean to him personally? You know, that you're trying to follow in his footsteps. And that probably means more to him than you know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been by my side day in day out since my freshman year. He he got me into wrestling, which I'm wrestling in college, going to college for full tuition scholarship for wrestling. He got me into that, and, and I did nifty. He got me into it, and I feel like you know it, it means a lot to me and him. And I he deserves it. He's an awesome guy. You said um, during your presentation that some, sometimes when you lose, you win. You said something along those lines. What did you mean by that? I think uh, you were referencing after the national competition, but what uh, specifically did you have on your mind? On my mind is a better a person you said it early, later in the um, competition presentation over here was um, Kalia mm-hmm. from The Surge. Yep. She says, if you're going to fall, you're going to fall forward, not backwards. And I, I just picture that in my head is that if I'm going to fail, I'm going to learn from that mistake. And that I also had SLU last year from um, John Alsup, who sponsors the SLU Business Entrepreneurship Plan. He said, 
you know, I, I failed many times in my life, and I don't regret a single one of them because I learned something from it, and I'm, I look where I'm at today, and I would never change a thing. And I, that meant a lot. That means no matter what happens, if you keep moving forward, eventually you'll get it right. Eventually it'll work out. And I think that's the beauty of life, just moving forward after you fail. And after the break, we'll hear from the man I've been teasing you about this entire story. Jake Lipinski, Nifty's Global Teacher of the Year. And can't wait to hear from him, Alex. And, you know, you hear this over and over again about failure and risk-taking. And we're not doing a good enough job in this country teaching these things. And by the way, when you get a chance... Listen to two things. We've done quite a number of these stories about Nifty, and one in particular that tugs at our heart is Obino Coley's story, the Haitian immigrant who had two baby mamas, as he told us, but he didn't let it become three. And it made him very real with his students that he'd lived through tough circumstances. And here he was, a voice of these young men and women, actually teaching them about entrepreneurship. And Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney, uh, you'll hear from in this piece, too. And their business was the double backer packer. They're heading to New York. We're heading with them. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We love stories about entrepreneurship. The other thing I wanted to have you see and look and watch for on our website is Denzel Washington's commencement speech because he said over and over again to that graduating class in Louisiana, he told them, fall forward, fall forward. And don't have a backup plan. Fall forward. More on Nifty. More on these great stories. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're back with the final portion of Alex's report from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's Regional Pitch Competition in St. Louis, Missouri. In this segment, he speaks with the person all of these students you've been hearing from have in common, their entrepreneurship teacher, Jake Lipinski, Global Teacher of the Year. And by the way, in the background, you'll hear from periodically screaming in the background, Jake's boy. How did you get into teaching in the first place? Um, 
I, my former coach of mine, um, after I graduated from college at Mizzou and I wrestled there, called me up and said, uh, you need to come coach with me. And so uh, I said, I don't know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, so I went and coached at Lafayette and got me a job as a hall monitor. Did, did still know at that moment I wanted to be a teacher, but I come from a teaching family. My father was a teacher for 30 years. And a coach, right? And a coach. Um, my sister's a teacher. My brother-in-law is a teacher and a wrestling coach. Um, I was the last one to get into it, even though I was older than my sister. And I realized uh, pretty quickly once I got to the high school and was working there and coaching with kids, I really enjoyed the experience with the high school students. And and I knew right away that it was a place I wanted to be. So I went into grad school to be a teacher, and here I am. How did you get to do an entrepreneurship? you got to know how rare this is in most schools. Um, I think marketing and, and just I was going to be a marketing teacher and Entrepreneurship is um, part of some of the curriculum, and I kind of have always had that mindset. And actually, the guy I student taught under, who was my former coach, um, the guy got me into to education. Right when I finished my student teaching, me and him started a business. What and, was it? Uh, Soda Jerks. We, St. Louis Mills opened up. We had a store there for five years. And I worked a store for about three years, and like most businesses, uh, there was problems, mainly being at... St. Louis Mills <laughs> be a number one problem. The Mills is a shopping mall that, like many malls across this country, is now largely abandoned. And um, a few years into it, I decided I, I had my teaching degree, and um, I was coaching still, and I, I knew I had to start making a little more of a living than I was making it. You know, I had dreams of being a millionaire, which wasn't going to happen. And <laughs> the right opportunity came along. There was an opening, and I decided to go for it and got the job, and here I am, ten years later at Florida Teaching. You almost feel like your your failure has helped you. As oh, a teacher? I, fa- I tell the kids they laugh. You know, kids say they laugh. Like, you failed. You, you failed the business. What are you going to teach actually, us about? I actually had a kiosk once. Once I got back from, I'm one of those guys that when I travel, I'd see things like I want to take that to St. Louis. Yeah. So I opened up a kiosk selling Brazilian jewelry. I went to Brazil, <laughs> and it didn't work out that well. Another issue. So I, I tell the You're kids. Still standing there. Yeah, I tell the kids. I. Almost everybody that's you know been a business owner, they've had failures. I learned so much. Most of the stuff I teach my kids is all from the mistakes I made. You know, and my my buddy put it simply. He's like, you know, he wants to start another business one day, and he's a teacher. He's getting ready to retire here soon. And he said, um, you know, people ask me when to start a business. Of course, that that edu- that money that we lost in that business, that was like paying for a degree at, at Mizzou or something. I mean, <laughs> you literally learned so much from that. It was real life experience. What was you the know? soda jerks? Where did you guys sell? So soda jerks was. Um, Kind of like a a wine shop or uh, or a cigar bar for sodas. Okay. It was glass bottled sodas, all glass bottled from around the U.S. A lot of small brands that you can no longer find. We have uh, Fitz's here in St. Louis. Yeah. Well, every Do you have the Milwaukee one. I'm blanking yes, on the name. Spruckers. Spruckers. We yeah, sold I've Spruckers. Been, I've been to their brewery. Okay, so yeah. exactly every city has their Spruckers yeah. or their Fitz's. So we brought all those to our store. We we got them shipped. We um, we had distributors and we picked that stuff up. We had about one time maybe 300, 350 different bottles of soda in our store. Wow. The majority of it was glass bottles. Then we started getting international stuff that people were kept coming and asking us for. We started getting international bottles. We had a soda fountain. Of inventory. Yeah, we had a we had a fountain bar that was an old soda jerk. We yeah. went to Maryland and bought a real soda jerk bar. They, like they did back in the 20s and 30s. It's a great name for it. Too. And Soda Jerks was a great name. The kids loved it because they sold shirts. A lot of those shirts sold because wow. it said jerk on there. But for the older people, that, a Soda Jerk was somebody that made a soda. Yeah. And so the idea was there. The location was horrible and a few other things. But um, it was a great learning experience, you know, and, and, and we could mix and match. It was kind of like craft beers nowadays where you go in and make a six-pack of whatever you wanted, 12-pack. That's how ours worked. Yeah. And, 
that's that's that was the idea. How uh, is there a moment from your teaching this class that really stands out to you that you know when you go to bed at night says, man, this all has really been worthwhile. I it literally was happening when I was sitting back there and, and, and when it first started tonight, you know, sitting back there when those kids were ready to present. I said it's all worth it to see all these people there and, and to see. I honestly wouldn't I wouldn't have done this when I was in high school. You know. I was one of those guys that want to get in front of the class or anything, and, and it's amazing to me to see kids getting up there, and, and they have to put a lot of practice in, the nerves, they got to control all that, and, and you know, I, I that's what makes it worth it. These guys actually take my advice, you know, I'm not, I don't claim to be the expert on everything, but I tell them this is a great experience, and they're going to get a lot out of it, and, and these kids step up and, and believe in me. And they come up here, and, and the end result is getting up there. That's awesome. I mean, just to stand up there and do this, win or lose, is, is pretty impressive to me. I can see how much they respect you just in their interactions with you. Why, why is that the case? I, I, I don't know. I I guess coming from a – in the end, I think, you know, people know their calling. You, you figure out. I think I do have a knack for this. Coming from a teaching family, my father, and just the way I saw him interact with his former students and stuff, you know – I don't know what it is. I enjoy. I can tell just talking I, to you. You're I, a pretty I, genuine guy. I enjoy. Not faking I, I it or putting on an yeah, act. Talking I, with me or talking to uh, I made a. You know, I made my mistakes in my life. I enjoyed high school. High school was one of the best times of my life. And I just want kids to have that same experience. You know, high school should be great. It tries me things you want. I, and I tell my kids, here's regrets I have. I don't want them to have as many regrets. Try everything. You know, and I think this is just an unbelievable opportunity. They didn't have things like this when I was in high school. You yeah. know, and they I didn't want either. And I just. I encourage as many of them as I can to, to, to step up and, and do it. And, and I think every kid I've – I've never had a kid say I regretted it. You know what I mean? And, and that's the key, you know. Now, one kid's ever come back and goes, I wish I didn't do all that. Yeah. They, they all actually go, I wish I would have done it earlier. Do you have a favorite lesson that you teach? Oh, uh, <laughs> definitely not the financials. Uh, <laughs> that goes for – that's probably half the class. Um, and yet you're still doing it. <laughs> I, you know what I do is I, I, I do a quick thing. I, I have some fun where I have the kids. Um, I take a more popular right now is the, what are the flying um, to drones? Yeah. So right away about the second week of class, I have the kids spend about three days. I tell them a drone. It's out there. You can buy them. What can you do to make money with them? And there's some interesting things kids come up with. Deliver oh. medicine. Deliver, <laughs> deliver uh, hair. I, I, oh I mean, deliver hair? Uh, yes. And, you know, so I tell them, like, there's people buying drones right now to make money out of it. Yeah. It's interesting to see the array of ideas that kids come up with. And that's, that's gets them started to be creative, thinking, you know, how to solve problems, you know, and, and figure out things. So, What's with the handlebar mustache? Are you a, a, hipster, a hipster wrestler? Hipster I mean, doofus? Hipster uh, wrestler teacher? It's, it's quite a combo. It's uh, it's called branding. And um, father, I mean, you got a lot of labels. Yes, here. it's branding. Um I've never had a mustache in my life. A year ago, I just let it grow all summer because when I'm a teacher, I'm off in summer. And I said, you know what, I'm going to grow a mustache, and I just did it. I had it for a year. I let it grow out again my whole beard during the rest of the season. Good job. I'll see you tomorrow. And um, I brought it back again. I just say, you know, if you're going to go big, go, you know, if you're going to have it, go big. It was funny that I noticed this year the kids were coming to school. They walk around the school, and they're like, who's this Miss Lipinski? I hear them talking to other teachers or, or other kids. The kids go, it's the guy with the mustache. And there's about 10 other teachers that had mustaches forever. They, they say this, the guy with the mustache. The mustache, not the guy with the mustache. Yes. 
I must ask, they know it's me. So I tell kids, it's, it's branding. You know, you got to be, if you're going to do it, people got to know exactly what you, you know. So anyways. Reporting from St. Louis, Missouri, I'm Alex Cortez. And thanks for that, Alex. And thanks, Jake, for doing what you do. And that's Nifty's Global Teacher of the Year. And we love doing these stories. The Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, their regional pitch competition in St. Louis, Missouri. We're going to track these stories. Some of these kids and some of these adults are going to New York City. We'll be there as they pitch for the Nifty National Championship. And that's sometime this fall, and we'll bring it to you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jake Lipinski's story, his students' stories, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling so good so spiritually good that we must take the time oh, to sit back close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art Cairo, Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas, to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop the pootie from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. 
Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, There are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. (laughs) Okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to to change it as often as possible so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media, and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry McGuire's. 
So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where did they even come from? The, the Jerry Maguire, was, it was really just the, uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media, I think. The, there, there are many, many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other, um, the other footage that we use for, for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000-plus copies of Jerry Maguire and VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly called them, um, We've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the pyramid, we're raising awareness, we're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's, and uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry Maguire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, and they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling 
kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer, a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories... I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. A lot more of them. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the strains of the soundtrack of The Godfather. And when you get a chance, or if you get a chance, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to our hour special on the making of The Godfather. You'll hear from Marlon Brando. You'll hear from Mario Puzo, Francis Ford Coppola. And you'll hear a great story about how the mafia almost shut down the making of The Godfather in New York City. It's a terrific piece of work that our team did. And we're talking about the mafia, well, because... Well, we're talking about a particular man in this segment. Crazy Horse, he was known as, or the Dapper Don, or the Teflon Don. These are just a few of the many names that the infamous gangster John Gotti went by. And on this day in history in 1992, he was sentenced to life in prison at Marion Penitentiary. Gotti's larger-than-life persona captured the imagination of the American people, inspiring documentaries, songs, and films. But today, we're cutting through the sensationalism to ask, who really was this guy? Here's former law enforcement officers Ronald Goldstock and Remo Franceschini and Arthur Selwyn Rabb describing Gotti at the height of his power. When people want to use the term mobster, they refer to John Gotti. He was a well-built guy between 5'9 and 5'10, but he was up there in weight. He was close to 200 pounds, and he can handle himself. He, he could fight. He had a tremendous walk that looked like superior to most people, the way he walked. guy who uh, is respected as someone who will do whatever it takes, uh, whatever's necessary, uh, to satisfy all the people at the top of the crime family. Gotti was a man with an imposing figure willing to do anything to rise through the ranks of the underworld. He was born in the Bronx in 1940 and raised in extreme poverty. His father wasted away his meager earnings gambling, and Gotti resented this, lashing out in school and dropping out at the age of 16. While trying to steal a cement mixer, Gotti suffered an injury that would come to define him. Jerry Capici of Ganglin News explains. He and his buddies uh, began horsing around with it, and it rolled over his foot. He lost one of the toes of his feet um, because of it, and uh, he had an interesting bounce in his walk. Gotti walked on the balls of his feet for the rest of his life, giving him the confident strut he was known for. He soon became a low-level member of the Gambino crime family, and from day one, the competition there was ruthless. But this ruthlessness functioned on a foundation of trust. 
The mafia called their code of silence Omerta. Gotti finally made his commitment to this code after serving time for killing an Irish gangster named James McBratney. Gotti took the position of capo in the Gambino family after initiation, flexing his muscles in new and frightful ways. In charge of a sizable crew, Gotti committed remorseless acts of violence. Gotti soon turned his attention to the unpopular boss of the Gambino family, Paul Castellano. Castellano had separated himself from his family members, refusing to associate with the working-class enforcers of the mafia. Gotti, a product of poverty, made it his personal mission to remove Castellano from leadership. And outside of a classy steakhouse in New York City, Sparks, on a cold winter's night, Gotti ordered four men in trench coats and Russian fur hats to make the hit. He seized control of the Gambino family and transformed himself overnight. The rough and gruff enforcer Gotti quickly became the infamous and stylish Dapper Don. The rough and gruff enforcer John Gotti quickly became the infamous and stylish Dapper Don. Ronald Goldstock and Selwyn Rabb comment on this transition. A traditional mob boss looked to be under the radar. They wanted to control their criminal activities through intermediaries. They did not want to be seen as a powerful individual who could be targeted by law enforcement. Gotti was precisely the opposite. Immediately after becoming the boss of the Gambino family, his whole exterior changed. Previously, he wore windbreakers, black T-shirts. He had the jewelry of a uh, two-bit mafiosa. Suddenly, overnight, he switches. He's now wearing tailored suits, cashmere coats, even monogrammed socks. I mean, he went to great lengths to have this appearance of being an emperor. Gotti loved the limelight. He talked about it all the time, about he had his public. He didn't mind being stared at in restaurants. He boasted how important he was. He was a megalomaniac. Gotti brought a new level of exposure to the mafia, drawing attention to his secret family. Gotti's new position, combined with his behavior, made him the white whale of organized crime. Here again is author Selwyn Rabb. You had the FBI investigating him. You had the Queens DA's office investigating him. You had the Manhattan DA's office investigating him. You had something called the State Organized Crime uh, Task Force investigating him. And they were actually, it's so comical, at one time, three of them had separate bugs in, in Gotti's Queens headquarters, the Bergen Fish and Hunt Club. I mean, it was a joke. Everybody wanted a piece of Gotti, and after dodging three attempts at prosecution, he became the Teflon Don. Nothing would stick, and as the failed cases began to pile up, so did Gotti's ego. He felt invincible and moved his operation to the small Ravenite social club in Little Italy. The authorities began 24-hour surveillance. Bugs were placed inside the club, a move that Gotti easily avoided by playing loud music and taking walks with his associates around the block. When all seemed lost, the authorities made a breakthrough. Authorities could easily tell when Gotti was talking, but not what he was saying. Whenever Gotti would stop talking during a meeting, a woman would leave the Ravenite Social Club. Law enforcement discovered that this woman owned an apartment above the club, the location of Gotti's inner circle meetings. The authorities bugged that apartment. The evidence was damning. Gotti ordered murders and broke his circle of trust by badmouthing his fellow family members, all with disregard for secrecy. The charges stuck. Gotti died of throat cancer behind bars in 2002. Hundreds of people turned out to his funeral, and a motorcade over a mile long escorted his casket to his grave. 
Gotti made waves as a public and powerful mob boss, but still held on to his brutal and violent past. Those who knew him and worked on his case remember him as an objectively terrible boss, too concerned with his own ego to value the sacred rule of Omerta. Here's Selwyn Robb and FBI agent Bruce Morrow. So here's Gotti, who warns everybody not to talk on the uh, peril of death if they're ever heard picked up on eavesdropping. He goes up there and he's talking openly. The FBI itself could not have handpicked a better candidate to be the head of one of the major mob families in New York than John Gotti. Because of him, most of these captains were arrested, convicted, taken off the street. And they, they'd say, John and his friggin' big mouth, here I am. They'd, they hated this guy. He was an absolute ruination for the mafia. He was so inept, unqualified, and incompetent that he single-handedly wrecked the Gambino crime family. And when we come back, the life of John Gotti continued. He was incarcerated on this day in history in 1992. This is Our American Stories, and today we're telling a story of a mobster, a story of a city, and the story of cops and prosecutors who got the city out from under the thumb under the thumb of mobsters. On this day in history, in 1992, Gambino family mob boss John Gotti, known as Teflon Don for his ability to avoid guilty convictions, was finally sentenced to life in prison for 14 counts of conspiracy to commit murder and racketeering. To talk more about that era, we're joined by Charles Campisi. For 18 years, he was chief of the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau, the largest anti-corruption unit in the world. He held that position longer than anyone else. And while he didn't work the Gotti case, he was certainly hard at work during that era. And Charles's book, which we spent an hour on and you should read, uh, is Blue on... And Charles's book, which we spent an hour on and you should read is Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And Charles, thanks for joining us. Oh, certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Charles, take us, Charles, if you can, take us back even pre-80s, because in large measure, the new mob and the old mob are very different. The new mob is the Sopranos, a couple of wise guys stuff falling off trucks. But before Rico, and we're going to get into what Rico was, what, what, how big were these mob families? What influence did they have on crime? And more importantly, or perhaps equally important, on corruption with the police department? Well, they, they were very big in, in, in organized crime. They controlled many of the things that, uh, that people relied upon uh, in their daily life. They were uh, involved in, in all kinds of businesses, legitimate and illegitimate. They were involved in, in moving drugs, moving guns. Uh, obviously, devices, uh, prostitution, uh, drugs, gambling. These were the things that they were, they were very big on. And it was very difficult to conduct comprehensive investigations and to prosecute them. And it took the efforts of multiple agencies to come together in task forces. I remember the NYPD, the FBI, and uh, the Internal Revenue Service and some other organizations, both state, local, and federal, coming together to try to uh, infiltrate these organizations, to try to uh, attack them at, at the, not only at the street level, but at the organizational level. 
Yeah, because I mean, if you get the street level, they're just going to find replacements. In the end, you got to get the captains and the bosses. Tell, tell a few stories, or at least a story, if you could, about what the efforts were of the NYPD to get in there and try and infiltrate at a higher level. Well, you do a couple of things. Number one, you, you try to start at the lower level, which was very, very difficult. And you try to build your way up into the organization. you got to remember, somebody like John Gotti was beloved in his neighborhood. Uh, the people would protect him. The people looked at him as some sort of Robin Hood, as some sort of hero. I mean, every year he threw block parties in, in his neighborhood. He, uh, on the 4th of July, every year would have a big fireworks display, uh, a legal fireworks display, I might add. And the people protected him. And it was very difficult to build up into the organization. As a matter of fact, one year it was a major accomplishment for the police department to stop his illegal fireworks uh, display on 4th of July one year. And they were very proud of it, and they touted it as an accomplishment, as a beginning. But it was, it was extremely difficult to get in and build up into the hierarchy because the way you said it was absolutely correct. If you had somebody who was at the low level, uh, there are a dozen people lining up waiting to take that person's job. Should they get arrested? Should they be killed? Should they be somehow removed from the organization? And that was the main, the main thrust of the investigation, get in and dismantle the investigation. And with the passing of some RICO laws and the cooperation among government agencies was the only way that this was going to get done. And RICO got passed in the early 1970s. But for people who don't know what RICO is, uh, tell them about what a RICO statue is really all about from the eyes of uh, law enforcement. Well, you look at it as a corrupt organization. And if you can show that this organization is involved, just like a, a legitimate organization might be, in hierarchy, in, in structure, in, in the way they do business, you attack it as a corrupt enterprise, as a business that's operating outside of the law. Uh, and it was those RICO's laws that actually put the impetus behind the, the government to really move forward. And many of the convictions were based upon RICO statutes. You know, and I think the interesting thing about Rico was that, you know, there's this great scene in The Godfather. I call it the buffer scene because they're asking one of the hitmen, did Michael Corleone ever give you a direct order? And, of course, he didn't. He passed through a chain of command, and he leans over to his lawyer, this hitman, and he goes, he goes oh, no, there, there was a lot of buffers. There was a lot of buffers. And, 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 and so, he, and everybody started to laugh. What the RICO allows us to do on law enforcement side is say, if you're a part of a conspiracy in which a murder was committed and you're the boss, even though you didn't commit the murder, and we can't necessarily prove you even ordered the murder, the whole organization goes down. You're all guilty of that murder. Absolutely. Um, exactly correct. And so this, is, this, this gives you tremendous power. Talk about then the, the, the lead up to this bus, because this had to be one of the great moments in NYPD history. Well, it was, it was a very long and arduous investigation. Some really good police work, some really good detective work, and some imaginative uh, prosecutorial work from the, uh, the U.S. attorneys and the district attorneys that were working on these cases. It really had to be, uh, and sometimes you see it in the media, where there's war rooms, so to speak, when there's pictures uh, of the hierarchy, and the, there's a plan, and there's a master plan, and, and everything is done uh, with the idea of building upon what has previously been done and working your way up the hierarchy as high and as far as you can go. Sometimes that takes a long time, and it can be frustrating because there are times as you're going along where you're, 
you know, you're stymied. Maybe um, an arrest is, is thrown out for lack of evidence. Maybe uh, there's some prosecutorial misconduct. And you always have to be concerned about the influence of corruption. I mean, we had two police officers who were arrested and convicted of being hitmen for the mob. As a matter of fact, uh, they're known as the mafia cops. One of them just recently uh, passed away while in prison. Uh, but you always have to worry about that. You have to worry about, are they infiltrating us? Have they gotten to the point where they know our moves before we're ready to make them? And you have to keep your inner circle as close and as tight as possible to try to prevent that. And it's, it's a very difficult thing, and it's very frustrating to know that years of work can go down the drain by one slip of the tongue or one uh, corrupt cop. And let's talk about a little luck, too, because it turns out that Gotti wasn't certain about the bugging of a certain apartment. And so, and we sort of, the prosecutors, and I always say we because I say we the people, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're lucky enough to find this place that Gotti thought he was safe to speak. And we stumbled upon that. I mean, that was sort of an accident. And sometimes a lot of great police work is just some really good luck, too. Well, to be, to be lucky is, is, is a very important part. And to take advantage of that, that, that fortuitous action is, uh, is also very important. So if you're handed uh, a nice avenue to, to follow, you have to go down that avenue. And like I said, he was fairly well protected, fairly well insulated, uh, to the point where you know, he thought, and everyone else thought, at least in the public, I mean, law enforcement never gave up, but the public thought he was the Teflon Don. He was never going to be touched. He was going to uh, break all records and be, in, be in, in, in charge of his family forever. And give folks an idea who weren't from the New York area. I mean, this guy, the way he dressed, the way he acted, he acted like the mayor of New York. I saw him twice in my life. The entourage, people cheered. I mean, I couldn't believe it. People were cheering. I go, what are you cheering about? By the way, a guy like that shook down my grandfather's pizzeria every month made him buy certain cheese, made him buy certain sauces. And I always say, Gramps, what's that all about? And he'd say, you'll understand when you're older. And my grandfather wouldn't tell me. But that this is true. This is, you know, he was a local hero. I said before, he was sort of a Robin Hood. People tell stories of how he helped the poor and the indigent and, and people who needed uh, a, a leg up. And he was, you know, very generous that way. But behind the scenes, he was this major, major criminal uh, kingpin. And if you, I happened to be, when his funeral cortege passed, I happened to be in the area. His funeral cortege was a mile long. There were, without exaggeration, 50 cars full of flowers uh, that were following the hearse to the, uh, to the cemetery. He was uh, a local hero to the people in his neighborhood. He dressed extravagantly, the diamond pinky ring, uh, the, the, the extremely well-tailed clothes, the, the uh, impeccable hair. Uh, I mean, he really was uh, a larger-than-life character, and some people admired him, uh, which is, you know, when you look at it, it has to be insanity. But they admired him, they wanted to be like him, and they would protect him if they had to. Well, Charles, we appreciate you joining us. And by the way, I think the reason people admired him is they thought maybe he was just doing those drugs and doing the rackets and what we call the vices. 
But what they didn't know is how he was shaking down his own people, how he was extorting his own people, and really stealing from his own people. But by, by the way, his own people, like my grandfather, didn't go about the town telling anybody about it because he would have been dead, my old gramps. And so I appreciate you, Charles, for bringing us a little bit of flavor and local flavor to the life of John Gotti. This is Lee Habib, and this is Charles Campisi's story on John Gotti's story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series the most epic road trip ever and that's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two and a half year adventure exploring the American West and by the way if you haven't heard the earlier episodes go to ouramericannetwork.org and check them out and they're just terrific if you're taking a long drive somewhere just download them all and we're going to keep coming with them because My goodness, there's a lot of storytelling to do here. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our fourth feature on what happened on these exact days in history, the period of June 12 through 24, over 200 years ago. 13th June, Wednesday. William Clark writes in his journal. We set out early, passed a round bend to the south side, and two creeks called the Round Bend Creeks. Between those two creeks and behind a small willow island in the bend is a prairie in which the Missouri Indians once lived and the spot where 300 of them fell a sacrifice to the fury of the Saukies. This nation, Missouri's, once the most numerous nation in this part of the continent, now reduced to about 80. The remainder, all destroyed. No one is living in this former Missouri Indian settlement now who could have told Clark this tale. And he writes about it with such authority that he must have heard about it during their winter of preparation in St. Louis. Even so, it still must have been harrowing to go through a land that you knew went from the fullness of life to bloodshed to nothing. And the forces of aggression, the Saukies, were still out there. Here's the author of The Essential Lewis and Clark, Landon Jones. You could imagine that they posted the lookouts a little a little earlier and told them to stay awake a little longer when they were camping because of that, because of, you don't know who's out there. It'd be like entering the Middle East now, realizing all these people are fighting each other. And that's sort of what happened to Lewis and Clark. Or it would have been like something else closer to home. In some ways, it's like modern drug dealers fighting over turf. And so when they're shooting each other in the streets over drug rights and deals and deals gone bad, and it's the same thing with them. This is, this is the tribal, tribal warfare and it happens in the, in the cities in the U.S., and it happened there, too. In this particular case, the Saukies were pushed out of their own land in Illinois by white settlements. And they cross over the Mississippi River into Missouri. And instead of finding a new home in a peaceful manner, they chose the other route. And the Missouri Indians just happened to be the unfortunate folks they bumped into. The complexity of the relationships among the tribes was something 
It was the clock really wanted to solve that. It was part of their mandate to solve that, to cultivate order in a wild west that just became their nations in the Louisiana Purchase. And yet Landon Jones noted that tribal aggression wasn't the only actor in this dwindling of native populations. The other factor that, uh, that they don't know at all, and I don't guess, is that the smallpox had already been, been through this area. And, it, and, and my feeling is that the smallpox probably did more to decimate the tribes like the Missouris and the Autos. Thanks to the Spanish and the Mexicans who brought it with them to the territory. Here's William Clark. 14th June, Thursday. We set out at 6 o'clock after a thick fog, past a high land in Clay Bluff on the south side called the Snake Bluff from the number of snakes about this place. We passed a creek above the bluff about 18 yards wide. This creek is called Snake Creek. Our hunters came in. George Druyer gives the following account. He heard in this pond a snake making gobbling noises like a turkey and may be heard for several miles. He fired his gun, and the noise was increased. It's just very funny, and it's probably true. They had a lot of close encounters with big snakes, and they write about the snakes a lot. But I've never heard of a snake that gobbled like a turkey. But I have every reason to think that he was an accurate reporter, because Julio was by far the best, the best hunter on the expedition. Here's Dayton Duncan, the writer and producer of Ken Burns' documentary on Lewis and Clark. I think what they still tell us two centuries later is that all of us face uncertain horizons when we get up every morning, whether we're a nation or an individual. And the three most prominent words in their journals are this, we proceeded on. June 17th, Sunday, 1804. Cloudy morning wind from the southeast. We set out early and proceeded on. It's an interesting phrase and it's it's resonant to us now, I think, because of this sort of quiet conviction and courage that's embedded in those words. I mean, it's it's very unpretentious. We proceeded on. That's all. It's like we walked on. Uh, We persisted. And I, I think we admired that because of its lack of grandiosity. And, and, and this determination, and this quiet determination that lies behind it. A simpler phrase might have been, we left, but they chose, we proceeded on. With its connotation of forward motion and the will to progress. A will that they need. Clark's journal, that same day, continued. The party is much afflicted with boils, and several have the dysentery. The boils are eruptions on the skin caused by contact with bacteria. Dysentery it manifests itself as what we would call Montezuma's revenge, and that is to say really serious diarrhea. So it's a, a disorder of the intestinal system. Which is not exactly pleasant when you don't have a toilet to sit on. Clark attributed it to the water, which he said was muddy. And Stephen Ambrose wrote that the captains urged the men to dip their cups below the surface when they went for that drink of water. The surface water was full of scum, mud, and debris. If the men dipped deep, 
they would get the cleaner water. Ambrose added that the Roman legions put vinegar in their drinking water, but Lewis and Clark had taken no such precautions. That same day, Clark did journal something somewhat lighter. George Druyer, our hunter, and one man came in with a young horse they had found. This horse has been in the prairie a long time and is fat. Now why would Clark, out of all things you could note, decide to note this? I think that was unusual. That the horse had been out there and was eating free, a free-range horse and was eating, eating these rich, rich grasses up and bushes of the prairie. So it got fat and it wasn't being ridden around a lot. So it's not surprising. And I, I, they would observe it. I'm, I, you kind of wonder a little bit if they killed it and ate it, but who knows. This is Our American Stories, and thanks for that work, Alex, as always. And just hearing from the memoir, from the journal, is pretty extraordinary. And again, think about what these guys did. It's not like us going west now. And we bring you more of this epic road trip, as we like to call it, the most epic road trip ever. The Lewis and Clark story here on Our American Stories. If you want to hear the older ones, the first few... Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, take a listen. And by the way, if there's some story you want to hear about American history, you're interested in, you're curious about, your family is, send it in to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll send our crew on it, take a little journey of our own. Lewis and Clark's story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and from time to time, we like to bump in and out with some of the music of Gary Clark Jr., a young man who has risen to the top of the blues scene in just a few years. That's who we're listening to now with his track, Third Stone from the Sun. Gary Lee Clark Jr. was born in February 15, 1984, in Austin, Texas, one of America's great music towns. He won a Grammy in 2013 for Best Traditional R&B Performance. Eric Clapton said that hearing Gary Clark Jr. made him want to play the guitar again. Buddy Guy says that this kid could be the one to save the blues. Not bad accolades for a 32-year-old musician. In this documentary from Rolling Stone, we meet Gary Clark Jr. in the garage of someone he calls his biggest musical influence, Eve Monse, a white girl he met in the third grade who played the guitar. Here, 
these two reminisce about those early years of their friendship together. Can I use this thing? Sure, yeah. Remember the little 10-watt amp I used to have? Was it a crate? Yeah, a one. trying to compete with this thing. <laughs> I'm turning, like, all the way up. And the Grammy goes to... Gary Clark Jr., please come home. I'm so, I have no idea what to say. This is amazing. Um, Eve Monsey, I wouldn't be playing guitar. I wouldn't be playing music. If it weren't for her, she took me to my first gig, and it all started from there. What do we play back then? I kind of felt like we, we would just, you know, play yeah. play stuff. And I remember just... hearing you play that stuff. When yeah, you, yeah. On the house. That was kind of what perked my ear. I was like, what are y'all doing down there? <laughs> you know, people ask me, I'm like, who's your musical influence? Who do you look up to? It's like, that was her. You know, from my window, sitting around, you know, doing my homework or whatever I'm doing, I'm hearing this. I'm like, I want to go be a part of that. And she let me be a part of it. One, two. Third grade uh, was when we moved to Austin and from Houston, and um, Gary was one of the one of the kids in the class. I guess I think we were like in the middle of reading like Hank the Cow Dog or something, and she was introduced to the class. Hey, this is a new student from uh, Houston. Her name's Eve Monsey. Came and sat in the circle, and found out she lived right down the street. They went through three schools, you know, together, elementary, you know, middle school and high school, and, and uh, doing basketball and doing other activities at school. He was a brother she never had, I guess you could say, you know. Uh, for Gary, it was like, and she was like another sister. Around 11, my parents got me a, a guitar for my birthday, and to have that sound, to be able to move your fingers on this instrument and make this sound was like the coolest thing in the world. I thought it was cool that, you know, she could hear a record or whatever and be able to translate and figure out how to play it. I just was drawn in right away. I just wanted to be around it all the time. The pair became obsessed with a bootleg tape of 60s footage of blues greats like T-Bone Walker performing in Germany Rewinding and watching and rewatching licks again and again. Here again is Gary Clark Jr. and Eve Monsey. We'd hang out and we'd play in the garage, just, you know, we could play loud. And it was just kind of a place to escape, you know, uh, everything else that was going on and just do our thing. You know, I really just liked playing. I was more into just the wailing and, and all that. And she really started to get into the history. And the blues, the musician, tells a story and lives a story through his music. There was a, a period in the 60s where they would bring these awesome musicians from America over to Germany and film them. There was this bootleg tape going around and we ended up with this copy and, and it was, you know, we'd never seen footage of T-Bone Walker before or any of these guys. So we would watch this stuff and, you know, some of that stuff, T-Bone Walker's pretty fast. So we're like, okay, wait, back it up, okay. 
as I go, oh, 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 yeah, I got it. Okay, you know, so we try to learn from the tape. That was the thing that we shared that uh, none of our other friends shared with us was the music. I thought I was going to be the next boys to men or something. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Being here in this garage kind of helped change my mind about what I wanted to do with my life, you know. The guitar, you know, the rock and roll of it was edgier, it was cooler, it was more rebellious. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. Here, Eve's parents, Eve and Gary Clark Jr., talk about winning talent shows in school. They also started playing in bars. When they were in the eighth grade, um, in middle school, they decided to form a band for the talent show. We played Pride and Joy, Steve Ray Vaughan. That was like, you know, one of the earliest onstage moments that we had. They won first place in that. And the audience was just screaming like they were at some big, huge rock concert. One of those moments where I was like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. Crazy. I, I guess I still haven't like soaked up that I'm sitting here, and it's been so long. And what, seeing the parents here, I'm thinking about, you know, being too young to drive and hopping in the car and going to Antone's or Joe's generic bar. We were kids, and then going to school, and people would be like, "What did you do last night?" Like you have no idea, you know. They were up there playing till two, two in the morning. We had to you know, stay right there with them. You know, it was 21, so uh, except for them two. Here, Gary Clark Jr. and Eve talk about how things all started to change when he started playing at Antone's in Austin, and they began going their separate ways. And then, and then Gary got a letter in the mail from Eric Clapton. For me, the moment where it started to become real was playing shows at Antone's. It was really jumping here for many years. Clifford would go out of his way to hire everybody he could. You didn't come play in Antones because you were trying to help your career. You came to Antones and played because it was fun, and uh, you, you never knew who was going to show up. Hanging around Antones, you got to be introduced to guys like James Cotton, and Pine Top Perkins, Hubert Sumlin. The further I was going, it seemed like the history was coming up. I mean, I don't think we expected to feel so welcomed into the whole community. Well, we were like the new blood, you know, so they supported that. When we first started playing, we didn't know anybody. It was like we only knew each other, and that was it. And then we started meeting these other people. We kind of started to go separate ways. She started playing with a different band, and we just grew up and moved out of the house. And, you know, friends and parties and girls and things like that. I spent years playing at the Continental Club, playing at Antones. Kind of the starving artist, but didn't want to do anything else. You know, I wanted to play music. That was it. 2010, I get a call from Doyle Bramhall. He says, I think, uh, I think Eric Clapton uh, might call you for this Crossroads Festival. Have you heard of it? Sure enough, I get a letter in the mail from the dude inviting me to come to his festival. 
28,000 people or something, which is, I've never seen that many people in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of them, and they're looking at me like, what are you going to do? I hope you're awesome. Get lost in the city, try to find myself. I meet some guys from the label. A little while later, put out my first record called Black and Blue, and things just kind of been crazy since. And here Eve talks about her band. While she has yet to reach the level of fame that Gary has achieved, he says that he wouldn't be where he is now without her. Then we hear them jam a little bit to close out this great story. My main band's called Even the Exiles. I've been in the studio, we're working on a new record. and I feel like anything I'll ever do, it'll still have that blues foundation. Eve is my partner in crime. She knows more about and understands more about what I'm doing than I do, I think. If it hadn't been for her mentorship and friendship and support, I don't think I would be sitting here in this chair. This was the cool place to be for me. I mean, playing music, playing basketball. Yeah. Just kind of walking back with my little amp or my guitar back to my house, thinking like, yeah, this is, what now? You know what I mean? So, I don't know. This was the happy place, I guess. I guess so. Guy Clark Jr., an amazing American blues talent from humble beginnings, with a humble heart who isn't afraid to give credit where credit is due. What a great story about music, about guitars, about friendship. And by the way, we never mentioned Gary Clark Jr. is black and Eve Monsey is white. And they don't care. And we love telling those kinds of stories here on Our American Stories all the time. Because in America, most of the time, almost all the time, we just don't care. <laughs> 